Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Naman Cho. I'm one of the assistant pastors here on staff, uh, and also a, a campus minister at, at, at Carnegie Mellon University through the CCO. It's my joy and privilege to, to preach the Word of God this evening. And the last time I was here, a couple of weeks weeks ago, preaching, I, I preached through a couple of verses prior to our, our passage tonight from uh, from First Peter chapter two. Uh, and, and I wanted to read the last two verses from, from that sermon first, uh, because the passage tonight uh, sort of bookends what Peter was trying to say uh, when I preached a couple weeks ago. So providentially, I get to preach this, this last part of it here. But uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, if you have your Bibles with you, says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst, amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so when I preached this a couple weeks ago, I said this was actually the hinge verses, hinge part of this letter that, that Peter rests his entire book on. That this is like the meat of what we're trying to get at. And these past couple of weeks we've been going through how we experience freedom in Christ through their many different uh, entities and, and through different groups of people. And now he's kind of wrapping all of what he was trying to say up in, in tonight's passage. Um, so I'll read that for us tonight. It's printed in your bulletin. Uh, and if you would respond with a part of the people at the end of it. <clears throat> so from 1 Peter chapter 3, 8 through 12 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. And so when I mentioned a couple weeks ago that that chapter 2, verses 11 to 12 were the hinged verses of the entire letter, we come now to the part of the letter where where Peter sort of summarizes and wraps up um, his, his message again. So I guess what, what I could do is just re-preach what I preached a couple weeks ago and, and, and be for the wise. No, I'm not going to do that. But what, what Peter is doing is he's, he's unpacking everything that he's just said about how we are to submit to authorities, how we're to submit um, from, from slaves to masters in, in that context and, and to husbands and wives. And what does this practically look like for all Christians to display this life of freedom as people who have been freed by Christ? Um, growing up, one of the movies that I've uh, come to enjoy and respect it a lot, because also because it was on TV a lot, it was actually The Shawshank Redemption. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the movie, but it's a movie about uh, a banker who is put in jail uh, for the alleged murder of his wife and, and her lover. Um, and in this time, this character, Andy Dufresne, meets two different people. One uh, goes by the name of Red, played by Morgan Freeman, and another who is a prison librarian uh, by the name of Brooks. And throughout the movie, uh, there are different parts where Brooke, both Brooks and Red, who have been imprisoned in this Shawshank prison for decades, are finally paroled. They're, they're kind of released into uh, open society. 
And for both men who have been imprisoned, enslaved, for, o- for over the majority of their life, find difficulty in readjusting back to normal life. We see, we see them have the same job as, as the grocery store, uh, not even the clerk, the, the bagger, and they're trying to get used to this idea of not having to ask permission to go to the bathroom. Uh, and, and these men, who are, who are now in their very old age, have gotten so used to prison life that they don't know how to adjust, how to live in the normal outside world anymore. And why I found that so beautiful is that that's a pretty poignant picture of how we are as human beings to sin. Even though we may have received this parole, this pardon, this freedom in Christ as Christians, we tend to regress back, to revert to our old ways. We spent the majority of our lives living in a a very certain, specific, self-catered way that it's actually very hard to be free people. And so what we're going to look at tonight is how this passage actually displays a life of freedom. How these six commands that we'll look at from Peter displays freedom in Christ. John uh, McCombs kicked it off um, a couple weeks ago with his sermon on submission to authority. And Joseph spent the last two, two weeks on submission as slaves to masters in that context and husbands and wives. And so as Peter is wrapping up um, how to live life as Christians, these Christian essentials is what, I, what I'll say, is how do we live life in freedom? Um, <clears throat> and as we're doing that, he addresses uh, the Christian as a whole. Just as this passage bookends the, the Christian essentials and how to display freedom, he's going to actually address the whole person uh, and not just one part or one group of people. Uh, but in, in the three things that we'll look at this evening is how he addresses the Christian mind, the Christian heart, and the Christian hands, or I'll say the Christian deeds. The Christian mind, heart, and hands. So we'll start with the Christian mind. Uh, if you'll read with me, starting with verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I guess Peter likes using this bookend, this sandwich method. And so when he, when he talks about the mind, this is the first command and the last command that we find there in verse 8. He says, have unity of mind and have a humble mind. Unity of mind and a humble mind. So we'll start unpacking with the unity of mind. Having a unity of mind or also having harmony with one another. Or quite literally as it was, would have been used in the Greek is to be like-minded. So Peter is exhorting the church, exhorting Christians to be like-minded, to live in harmony, to agree with one another. But this isn't for the sake of agreeing so that we can all agree on something, because at some point you're going to have to compromise truth, reality. He's not just exhorting us to blindly agree on the same thing, but a harmony that's built on the gospel that he's been preaching. And Peter would have been very familiar with this. If we look back to an account in Matthew, right after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. Here is this account where where Christ is talking about him having to go to the cross and having to suffer and die. Peter goes to him and and he says to Jesus himself, he rebukes Jesus. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? He says, Christ, don't talk about these things. Why are you associating yourself with death and suffering? 
And this is what it says in Matthew. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Right after Peter confesses Jesus as Christ as the Lord, and right after Jesus says, I will build my church upon you, we see this confrontation happening, this rebuke happening. And what is Jesus trying to say here? He said, have your mind on the things of God. When Peter exhorts us to have unity, harmony, to be like-minded, he is calling us to be in unity of mind of the things of God. Unity not for the sake of unity, but for the sake of the gospel. Or as the Apostle Paul will say in Philippians chapter 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Unity of mind for the things of the gospel, for the things that Christ has done for us, for the things in which we can die to ourselves, that we don't count that as loss, but we, we count Christ as king. Are we in harmony about that as a church, as a city? We'll move on to the other mind piece that Peter talks about. And the last commandment in verse 8 is, have a humble mind. Have humility. Um, a type of lowly mindedness. Things to be mindful of the things of, of low, that, that are lowly in nature. And the best way to do this is recognizing first who God is as creator of the universe, and then who we are as the created ones, the ones created by him. Blessings of God do not grow in the soil of, of pride or our own self-ambition, but of humility. And now I don't want us to confuse humility with kind of self-degradation or, or low self-esteem. Humility is not to, to think of ourselves, to think less of ourselves, but as Pastor Chin Keller would say, but to think of ourselves less frequency. This practice of self-forgetfulness, of a constant mind towards others, towards the things of the gospel, towards how God is working in our lives, towards, God is, towards how God is working in our community, in our midst. <clears throat> now, these are, are very easy things to kind of analyze and point out and, and to speak about, but the, the hardest thing the biggest challenges for us when it comes to unity and harmony with one another and humility of the mind is because that is exactly the opposite of the world around us tells us. Unity of mind, humility, yeah, right. As I, as I continue doing ministry at, uh, at Carnegie Mellon uh, with college students, and sp particularly at CMU, I'm running across a common theme of uh, this cultural message on campus to say, have a great mind, one that sticks out above all the rest. Attain all the information, the knowledge that you can, and no matter what it costs you along the way, and no matter what bridges you burn, the only thing that's going to set you apart is how great your mind is, regardless of how that relates to others or how humble you are. And that's actually not a message unique to Carnegie Mellon. I'm sure at one point or another, we have all had similar thoughts. 
ironically. Don't give up your knowledge, your wisdom, your years of experience, your, your years of sacrifice and hard work. Harmony and humility are not only our society's default message, but our own. The alternative to seeing ourselves as free people in Christ is that we think we are the ones that free ourselves. This is the, the tricks that our minds play on us. <clears throat> when I was young, uh, my parents uh, played into a very strong stereotype, uh, into forcing me to play an instrument. And uh, I landed on the cello because I thought it sounded great, and I still do. I think the cello is probably one of the most amazing single-sounding instruments out there. And so I, I picked up the cello, and, and they, they brought me through a barrage of private lessons, and I played in the, in the school orchestra, and, and everything that I had in mind about what playing the cello would sound like, I, I thought of like, Yo-Yo Ma, I'm gonna be the next Yo-Yo Ma progeny. Um, and of course, that didn't happen. Um, Years of private lessons, of being a part of an orchestra, and when you, when you have sheet music of orchestra in front of you, and you're playing your part, it doesn't always sound that great. It doesn't sound like I imagined. Um, but it's only once you start to play with other instruments, when you're with the full orchestra, that you begin to see the beauty of the, of the harmony that exists. So as Christians, as we sit here, as we have our own instruments, have our own gifts, have our own ways in which we are proclaiming the gospel of Christ, how are we in harmony and unity with one another? And the only way to know that is the sheet music is the word of God. And the composer is Christ himself. Now, for those of you who are coming and, and that are not Christian and you're sitting on this insider conversation of of what it's like to sit in a Christian symphony, uh, I encourage you, thank you for coming. And we want you to continue to explore the beautiful music that is being made in this very room as we sit and as we listen to the gospel of Christ and as we go out from here and try to proclaim that to others and see that as the first task at hand. We're not listing these commands as a to-do list as Christians, but we are actually listing the virtues of Christ himself. And so... We're glad that you're here, and we're glad that you're exploring and checking things out, and we want you to continue to do that as we discuss and as we hear from God and how we, to do, how we are to do that as followers of Him. So unity and humility of the mind. It's not, how do we know what to play? Because God gives us to it in His Word, and it's not as though we try to push ourselves out into performing that solo, but how do we play uh, in harmony with one another? I know it's, it's, a, it's a very brief overview of, of the mind. There are so many other things that could be said, uh, but for the interest of time, we'll, we'll move on to, to see what and explore what Paul, or Peter, sorry, excuse me, Peter says about the heart. Continuing there in verse eight, uh, it says, "Finally, all of you have unity of mind." And these next three things, these three things in the middle, uh, the meat of his sandwich here is have sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart. Sympathy brotherly love, and a tender heart. Now, these are, these are all issues of the heart that Peter is trying to address here. And the first one there is have sympathy. Be sympathetic. Be sensitive to the spiritual things, to the emotions that are happening within your community. 
And now it makes sense to command this because for those that are living in harmony and humility with one another, you ought to be sympathetic with one another. So that there's no room for preoccupation or self-mindedness. But if we're trying to encourage self-forgetfulness, sympathy is the way to go. Preoccupation and sympathy cannot coexist because we're trying to be mindful of, of all the other people around us. Things become more than just this textbook answer or this Bible study answer of how we are to consider living as Christ calls us when we consider sympathy because we begin to rejoice with those who rejoice and we begin to mourn with those who are mourning. I was constantly inundated, I remember, at a time of, uh, of looking at my phone and, and receiving news notifications of, of yet another shooting that happened somewhere across the country. And so when, when I read things like that, my, my heart, there's a very default knee-jerk reaction that my heart tends to do, which is to read it and say, man, another one. Then I quickly over, I would turn my phone over. But when we look at what Peter is calling us to do to have sympathy, is what happens when something happens within your own community, something happens within your own family. And this is exactly what happened when we saw the shootings at the synagogue. Or even a couple of years ago, when the next town over to me was Newtown, Connecticut. And so it's not to say just disregard the things that don't relate to you. That's not what I'm saying here. Is that as Christians, as those who are human beings, who, are, who live in community with those around us, mourn for the things that other people are mourning for and rejoice in the things that other people are rejoicing as well. Have sympathy. When one suffers, everybody suffers. As Paul writes in his theme in, in 1 Corinthians 12, as the body. Connected to sympathy is this idea of brotherly love. And rightfully so, this is addressed amongst Christians. We are to love one another as siblings because, for those who believe in Christ, we have all been adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. Amen? Amen. And so as we have brotherly love for one another, we are to consider those sitting next to you, sitting in the rows behind you, maybe even those you have never met before, how do I love this person like a brother or sister? Now, that's, that's a very difficult thing for me to do because I have a very good idea of how to love my wife and how to love my daughter. But when I begin to equate that with, with everybody else, it, it seems like pri priorities are getting mixed and it, there's difficulty that arises there. But when we even look back to this idea of sympathy, when we are to regret, uh, when we are to, uh, sorry, rejoice for the things that other people are rejoicing and mourn for the things that they're mourning, how do we know how and when to do that? is that we have to be in life and community and loving one another as brothers and sisters to, be, to even be mindful of those things. And if we have brothers and sisters in this community, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are very aware of the things going on in their lives, the things that are happening. Mindfulness, sympathy, all these things are interconnected. They're not just exclusive categories. And lastly, as it, as it pertains to them, matters of the heart. Have a tender heart. Or even most commonly known in other translations, have compassion. Uh, the Greek word that's used here to, to have a tender heart or to have compassion actually refers quite literally to, to somebody's inner organs, their, their, their bowels, so to speak. And so in the colloquial 
it would have been equated to modern day, like, have guts. So this, this was the, the Greek uh, equation of, of having uh, this Greek word compassion. Uh, but for the Hebrews, biblically speaking, throughout all of uh, Old Testament literature, and even when, when Christ talks about it, compassion is linked to mercy. Not just having guts or, or courage or fervor, but it's linked to a love that is called to action, to mercy, a concern for others, not unlike what we see Christ exhorting to in his parable of the Good Samaritan, having compassion for one another. Now again, all these things, sympathy, compassion, uh, brotherly love, all these things go against our own heart impulses because we are thinking about how do I take advantage of the resources that are at hand? How do I take advantage of the people that are around me for my own gain? Sin causes our hearts to enter into modes of, of self-preservation rather than self-forgetfulness. Our hearts become desensitized to the pains of others, to, to news notifications that happen from around the country. Our hearts are conditioned to love only ourselves and not others. And our hearts are hardened towards showing mercy and compassion only to those who we want to or who we see fit. <coughs> but again, these aren't just blind commands that Peter is telling us to do for the sake of doing them, but these are very virtues rooted in Christ. For we have a high priest who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses. He was the firstborn of all creation and showed brotherly love for each of us. And he showed ultimate compassion, ultimate mercy as he went to the cross. The things of the mind, the things of the heart, as Peter is, is worried about here, and, and he continues on as how all of these things, when we are to meditate on them, when we are allow Christ to change our hearts, how do these play out into our hands, our deeds, the way that we actually live our life? And that leads us to his second command, in, or his second, the second verse there in verse 9. If you allow me to read it, it says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So we'll stop there. The last command that, that Peter gives is to bless others. Whether Christian or non-Christian, blessing others is beneficial to whomever we interact with. But especially towards non-Christians, as he said back in chapter 2, we are to be honorable around those around us because we are called to be witnesses, called to be ambassadors of Christ. And to re represent Christ so that Gentiles would glorify God because of us. So we are called to bless others. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And that would have been a very controversial thing for Peter to say in the midst of Christians who are suffering persecution from the Roman Empire. So he's not just saying, don't stop, don't just stop repaying evil for evil and reviling for reviling. It's not just avoiding to do bad things because that's kind of easy. We can just do that in isolation. If we lock ourselves in our, in our houses, if we lock the doors, pull down the shades, don't have any interaction with the outside world, we can very easily not repay evil for evil and a reviling for reviling if we don't meet those people. But he actually calls us to be in forward, proactive motion, to bless 
others. To have an intentional life defined by actively blessing. We get even with other people by blessing them. And we are called to to do this and motivated to do it, to receive a blessing from God, as Peter says himself, that you may obtain a blessing. I want to pause here and say that this is not a a prosperity-based motivation to gain favorable circumstances. It's not as though if you bless others, God will bless you in return. That It's it's this one-to-one formula ratio uh, that, that Peter is trying to give here. But Peter is listing the goodness of God. And an overall general good practice for us as we bless others, we see the Lord's blessing all around us, even though we may not see the direct fruit of us blessing in that very action. Because Peter exhorts us to do this in the midst of suffering. It's not to say that if we bless others, we'll avoid suffering altogether, because his very next verses, as I think uh, Pastor Joseph will preach next week on suffering, is that suffering will come. It's not to say that if you bless people, you will be avoiding suffering altogether. And we don't bless others to receive a blessing of God as a way of earning our salvation, earning righteousness, because that would actually be easier. We could keep a laundry list of, God, here are all the things that I've done, that I deserve salvation. But instead, we are a chosen and living priesthood. We are a royal priesthood, being built up in Christ, as we read a couple weeks ago. So these are just essential characteristics that flow out for those who have known Christ, who have set their minds on Him, who have had their hearts changed by Him. We don't bless others to try to earn our way back to God. And Peter qualifies this by uh, quoting Psalm 34 there, starting in verse 10. It says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Psalm 34 would have been a very um, recognizable psalm for those listening. It was often used as a catechism in the church and, and more than likely used as a hymn that was sung. We even actually have hymn versions of Psalm 34 that we sing today. So these are general guidelines for truth. How we engage in good acts. How we walk down the path of righteousness. And when we walk down the path of evil, we will get burned. Peter shows us clarity and continuity between the Old Testament scriptures and New Testament living quoted here. These aren't just optional extras, but they're essentials to Christian living. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And we see amazing examples of, in the, in the midst of this evil and reviling, when those who are called to Christ bless others, we see immense repercussions. We see immense effects of it. In Acts 16, we find the Apostle Paul and Silas in jail. And what are they doing in jail is that they're singing hymns and they're praying aloud. And miraculously, from an earthquake, the jailhouse rumbles and doors open up. And the jailer, the Philippian jailer, comes in to see what has happened. And he's about to commit suicide because the one job that he was supposed to do in watching and keeping guard, he was not able to do and all the prisoners must have escaped. But Paul encourages him to stop. 
Don't do that. We're all still here. Paul blesses this jailer. He sings and prays out loud so that this jailer can hear him. And what happens as a result of this? Not only is the jailer, but his entire family is baptized that evening, received into the Lord. A couple of chapters before in the book of Acts, we see Stephen, the Greek, preaching to the Jews, preaching to those who would listen, almost rebuking him for the very things that they have done to to crucify Christ himself. And as they are angered by this, they bring him out to the city, and, and Stephen is is infamously known as the first martyr of the new church, stoned outside the city in in Acts chapter 7. And the very first words of Acts chapter 8 was that and Saul was there, and he approved of his execution. Saul saw this. He saw suffering and reviling and evil done against one who believed in Christ in his mind and his heart. And Stephen said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He does not repay evil with evil, but he blesses them. And Saul is a witness to this. And it's no coincidence that he, his is the first thing that is mentioned in Acts chapter 8. Because he will be converted in the very next chapter and, and one of the greatest apostles that we'll see of our time. And the greatest example of blessing in the midst of suffering that we see is Jesus and himself. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he said to them, as he said to God as they were nailing him to the cross. And so as we think about living a life that is free, free in Christ, we are to think of it, how does this affect our minds, the way that we think, the way that we interact? How does this change our hearts? And how does this even bear fruit in the way that we live, the deeds that we perform? And as a point of application, and as a point to close, we are to live out all of these commands in the context of community. Not a single thing that Peter exhorts us to here can be done in isolation. When he calls us to harmony and unity and to be humble and to show brotherly love, we can't do that in front of a mirror. It's to say that to turn to the people beside us sitting, coming to church next to us every Sunday in and out, and it's to say, I need you. I need you to to know more about Jesus. I need you to know more about myself. That I can't be humble, I can't have harmony with one another if if there aren't other people in my life who know me, who love me, that will show that for me. And so that when we are involved in these things, when we meditate upon these things, and we, we let the good news of the gospel change our hearts, the watching world around us will say, I don't know why these people do what they do and their only other explanation is to glorify God. And so, I exhort us tonight as members, as visitors, as attendees of City Reformed, what does it look like to have our minds on the things of the gospel? What does it look like to have our hearts changed by the good news? And how are we living lives that displays a life, a community that is actually free free from our own sin, free from being further enslaved by by the default tendencies of our hearts or or what the outside world is is telling us. But how are we set free in the deeds that we do for others? And that's only possible by meditating more and more on Christ himself. Would you pray with me?